The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. Everyone experiences trauma, and whether it's a specific harrowing event or a series of stressful moments over time, trauma can etch itself into our brains and echo as we remember it over and over throughout our lives. On this episode, we'll find out about the long-term effects of trauma and what we can do to reduce them. Joining us is neuroscientist Dr. Tracy Shores, who's the author of a fantastic new book called Everyday Trauma, Remapping the Brain's Response to Stress anxiety, and painful memories for a better life. Dr. Shores, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. Tell us more about the kinds of experiences that cause trauma. Well, they're almost too long to list, right? There's so many things that can be traumatic. They're not necessarily always traumatic. Um, But, you know, everything from you know, the death of a loved one to a violent attack to a natural disaster. I would certainly uh, include the pandemic as as a traumatic uh, event. The term everyday trauma kind of spans beyond our typical idea of trauma. Usually we think of a traumatic event as something kind of discrete, definable, maybe even kind of short in terms of how long it lasts. But I kind of came up with the term everyday trauma to describe other types of trauma that that do go on, you know, day after day, week after week. Uh, To some extent, the pandemic is like that. Maybe if you're suffering from an illness, a chronic illness, or, or taking care of somebody who is... Uh, discrimination, et cetera. So there's like a lot of traumas that actually are are quite protracted, go on like day after day, week after week. And then even for those that are short lasting, like the exact experience is very short, the thoughts and the memories that are elicited by them go on. So you think about what happened. Yeah. Think about what happened, remember it. You know, feel bad about what happened. Uh, all those are really also, you know, those are examples of, an, of the way an everyday trauma kind of goes, goes out over time. It's really interesting to me how PTSD symptoms can be just as strong as for somebody who has a fear of test taking because maybe they really screwed up an important test when they were younger as they can really for somebody who was in a plane crash or something really traumatic. And I think there's a lot of shame that people feel if they haven't experienced something that was really life altering and they don't want to open up about that because they feel like, oh, they're going to be minimized. It's not enough. It's not, it's not enough. And is it enough? I mean, what do you say? Should we be judgmental about what causes people PTSD? 
Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it's hard because I think in clinical circles, so like in clinical psychology and clinical psychiatry, they almost have to have a definition of what constitutes a disorder. You know, so something like post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, has a set uh, of criteria that to some extent must be met in order for someone to get that diagnosis. And, you know, that diagnosis is important for many things, for getting treatment, maybe sometimes even for getting uh, reimbursed for health care. There's all kinds of reasons it's useful for research purposes. Well, you're right. There's also a lot of people, in fact, the majority of people wouldn't be diagnosed with PTSD. Um, but they might have these symptoms and, and not be able to necessarily put them into a, a category. And what are, are the, what, what are the symptoms of, of trauma, of PTSD? Well, the symptoms of trauma are vast. Um, and they, and I do go to, to some extent to describe them in the book, but they go from everything from, uh, being afraid, obviously. So being exposed to events that remind you of what happened in the past. So that could elicit feelings of fear in the body. Um, they're also accompanied by thoughts. They're called post-traumatic cognitions. So those are thoughts specifically about a trauma. Um, anxiety, obviously. So that would be, you know, kind of a fear of what could happen in the future. Could it happen again? Depression is often associated with, with trauma. So people start to feel, uh, you know, sad or reluctant to engage with, with the world around them. The symptom, I'm not exactly sure it's a symptom, but the the outcome of trauma that I focus on primarily is uh, rumination. And rumination is a thought that you have over and over and over again. And the word to ruminate actually means to chew, to chew on like a cow chewing its cud after all the nutrients are gone. And so ruminative thoughts are like that. They're very, they're repetitive, right? So you repeat them. So in a way, they're, they're a form of memory, but they're also attached to uh, feelings often of maybe regret, blame, guilt. Usually, they're usually negative. And um, they're really common. You know, they're common in people who have had trauma. They're common in women. Um, they're co particularly common in people who are, are depressed. So, in fact, one study that, that we did, we found that ruminative thoughts are kind of um, a predictor, in a way, of how these other symptoms will, whether or not these other symptoms will also emerge. Let's talk about that a little more with women. I was absolutely shocked to see that they're three times more likely to suffer from PTSD than men. Because I grew up, like I think a lot of people, thinking of PTSD as something that affected soldiers from war. And why don't we know about how much it affects women? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised that people don't know that. And, and it's... Um... Yeah, I mean, I got interested in sex differences in, in this area probably 20 or 30 years ago now, 
more maybe. <laughs> and that was kind of the reason, you know, because all this research was being done, uh, oftentimes in, in men and yet in, in males, in laboratories. And yet, you know, here women were having two or three times uh, as likely to be diagnosed. So it's uh, it's not debatable, really. Now, there, the reasons why, that's a whole nother story, why women are uh, more likely to be diagnosed with PTSD. That's why, why is that? Well, there's not one reason. There's several. Um, one of them is hormones to some extent, because most of these sex differences don't arise until after puberty. So if you look at the, and this is true for depression and anxiety to some extent as well. So if you look at the numbers in children, they tend to be kind of similar between boys and girls. But so the, the increase generally emerges as women start to menstruate and become you know, sexually receptive or active. Um, and there's changes in, with pregnancy. There's some changes across the menstrual cycle. There's changes with menopause. You know, so there are hormonal effects for sure. There's also kind of um, societal influences. So uh, women are often more likely to seek help and, and to talk about what's happening. So there's kind of that issue. Um, sometimes it's, it's been, you know, there's some evidence to suggest that women don't feel that like they have as much control over their lives as men do. And that could kind of contribute to this kind of feeling of, of helplessness. Um, yeah, so there's lots of reasons. I don't think it's just it's not just one reason. It's a it's a combination of factors that that lead to them being more highly diagnosed. After somebody experiences a traumatic event, is it a good idea for them to go and tell all of their friends and family about it in an effort to kind of, you know, share the shame a little bit or process, or process it. it or should they try and keep keep it to themselves and minimize it so it doesn't become a bigger deal? Yeah, you know, I'm kind of hesitant to give advice. I, I, I'm not a, psych, a clinical psychologist, and so I don't, you know, treat people and I don't um, do therapy. And so I, I'm a little hesitant to say necessarily, but what I would say is that everybody is different. And so there's not a kind of one size fits all. And so for, for one person, it might be really helpful for them to go and talk to their best friend or their mother or something, whereas someone else uh, might need more time. I think that, you know, this is one of the things that I've also thought a lot about is like even in the Me Too movement, which I was doing a lot of research on sexual violence as well during that time period. and. Um, you know, for some people that was useful to, to talk about what had happened to them. And yet for other people, they, they said it was, it kind of, uh, was brought up things that they weren't really ready to think about again. So I think it's very, it's very individual and, um, but it's at least good that people feel that they could talk about it if they want to. 
I found it because I do think for many years people didn't talk about what had happened to them. And I would even say men in particular, like my my father had quite a bit of trauma in his life and he never talked about it. You know, he just I don't think it was acceptable to talk about it in his day. Our Nobody Told Me conversation continues as we tell you about Paired, the relationship app for couples. How does it work? Well, you and your partner download the app, pair together, and every day Paired gives you questions, quizzes, and games to have fun, stay connected, and deepen your conversations. It's simple and often hilarious and heartwarming. Each day you get a quiz to play or a question to answer, and you can't see your partner's answer until you answer yourself. Whether you're just a few dates in or have been together a long time, it's time to lighten the mood and have fun with your partner by using Paired. My husband and I have been together for decades, and we really enjoy using Paired. Let's face it, you need to work to keep a relationship fresh and growing, and Paired helps a lot with that. We love the questions Paired asks us to answer about each other, like what's something you admire most about your partner, and what's one new activity you could try together this month? If you're in the younger age group and have a newer relationship, Paired is a wonderful way to get to know someone better. You might really like the Paired quizzes about managing jealousy, saying sorry, and gender roles at home. Try it out to spark meaningful conversations with your partner every day with fun, research-based conversation starters. Paired has hundreds of questions, quizzes, games, and tips curated by acclaimed relationship therapists and academics. And Paired has a special offer for our Nobody Told Me listeners. Head to Paired.com slash nobody to get a seven-day free trial and 25% off if you sign up for a subscription. Just head to P-A-I-R-E-D dot com slash nobody to sign up today. Connect with your partner every day using Paired. A happier relationship starts there. Just head to P-A-I-R-E-D red.com slash nobody to sign up today. Get a seven-day free trial and 25% off if you sign up for a subscription. I found it fascinating that your research reveals that when we're reminded of our trauma, reliving that tragic moment copies yet another memory of it in our brain, making it that much more difficult to forget. So tell us more about that process and the impact that has. Yeah. So my research over the last, gosh, almost 40 years now has been mostly on memory and how memories are acquired and stored in the brain. And there's a part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is very much involved in that process. And it's a... so it's always responding kind of to what's what's happening now and taking kind of what's happening now and then associating with things that maybe happened in the past, trying to predict uh, what's going to happen in the future. So one of the things that we know is that when you bring back a memory from the past, you make another memory. Because you brought that memory now into this moment. So if I bring up a memory, say, of my mother, you know, at a certain event or something, and I think about it, and then I maybe even have an emotional response about it, because it's my mother, who I love dearly. So 
Then I make kind of another memory of that memory that's now in this present moment. So sometimes it's called editing or updating. You know, it might not be a completely new memory, but it's, it's a related memory. And so one idea is that, you know, when you keep thinking about these memories over and over again, that you're kind of making, you know, more related memories, which under certain circumstances could, could be uh, problematic. Now, what I do want to add is that a lot of therapies actually encourage people in therapy to bring up memories, right? The most uh, common therapy for trauma is exposure therapy, prolonged exposure therapy, where people do, under the supervision of a you know, professional, bring back memories of traumatic events. And the idea is that with time, going over the memories over and over, finally, like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe it's not, maybe I don't have to be afraid anymore. That it did happen in the past, but now I've learned that that event is from the past and that the stimulus that would normally make me afraid, uh, it doesn't anymore. I've learned that. My brain has learned this new information. So sometimes, you know, it's good to, to, to go over these memories, in, like I said, under controlled conditions or safe conditions. But when you're just ruminating and thinking about it over and over, which I'm a big ruminator, so I have a lot of personal experience on this. And I'm sure, you know, most people, a lot of people say that they are. Um, maybe that isn't, isn't so, so useful. And just to kind of, you know, I don't, I'm not, again, I'm not really trying to necessarily uh, prescribe uh, what people should do as much as des describe, you know, so kind of describe like these events are happening in our brain, they're changing our brain. And so the more we can learn about kind of how our brain works, you know, how it acquires information, how it, uh, stores a memory and revisits a memory, like just kind of knowing a little bit more about that, I think would be useful for, for people. I'd love to know more about the research you did on aerobic exercises impact on recovering from trauma, since that's a free way for people to uh, try and get better. Yeah. So about 20, it's over 20 years ago now, actually. It was discovered that the brain continues to make neurons. So most of the neurons you have in your brain, you've had since you were born, and, and they don't reproduce. But in the hippocampus, this part of the brain that I study, there was uh, this discovery. And to some extent, I guess it's still unclear, you know, exactly what these new cells uh, do per se. But one of the things, one of the set of studies that I was involved in, we showed that they're involved in some aspects of learning, you know, some aspects of memory formation. And then other people in other labs had shown that you could make more of these cells. Again, these are laboratory studies, but that more of these neurons were generated with uh, exercise, in particular, aerobic exercise. And 
So I had this idea, well, wouldn't it be maybe potentially useful for people to do two activities at once that we that are good seem to be good for the brain? One of them learning, which we know increases, you know, not only these neurons, but all, all kinds of changes in the brain happen with learning, anatomical changes, physiological changes, et cetera, et cetera. Combine that with uh, aerobic exercise. Um, so I developed this program. It's called MAP Training. It stands for mental and physical. That's what the MAP stands for. And the mental training is meditation, sitting, silent meditation. So it's a, I think of it as a form of brain training because it's, you know, it's hard to sit in silence and uh, listen to your own thoughts. And then it's followed by 30 minutes of aerobic exercise. So the idea is that you're learning, you know, a little bit more about your own brain and your, the thoughts that it's generating all the time when you're not uh, engaging with them. And then you're kind of flooding the brain with oxygen when you do this aerobic exercise right after that. And you also include slow walking meditation. Is that, is that something you do? You do the sitting meditation and then the slow walking meditation and then the aerobic exercise to, to help remap your brain's response to stress? Yes. So it's 20 minutes of sitting, which 20 minutes can be difficult for some people to do. Um, so I didn't want to make it too onerous to do. Um, so but most people could do it for 20 minutes. And yeah. Then, yeah, it's not like it still seems like a long time, you know, sometimes when you're doing it. But um, that's kind of the point is to kind of recognize, like, oh, sometimes it seems like 20 minutes lasted forever, forever, and other times it goes by really quickly. And then we slowly get up and walk very, very slowly for 10 minutes. And I like that kind of meditation, actually, because you're still moving, you know, you're, you're moving, but you're doing something, you're doing it consciously. Like usually when we walk, we don't even think about it. We just walk, walk, walk. We never like really stop to think about our feet and how our feet feel or how our body feels when it goes from one side to the other. And, and then the point is to kind of focus your attention on your feet. And then when your mind starts to wander off into the, to the past or the present, you know, the future worries that you might have, you just say, Oh, I've forgot to pay attention. Now put your, your mind, so to speak, back into your, into your feet. Um, and then we go right into the aerobic exercise. So it's also kind of a, I wouldn't want people to, to kind of just go from sitting to jumping up and down, right? So it's kind of a nice transition to do the, to do the walking in between. We thank you for being part of our Nobody Told Me family of listeners. And we want to take a minute to talk about Hover, one of our sponsors. That's Hover, spelled H-O-V-E-R. Have you ever thought about starting your own business or creating a brand? Sharing your wealth of knowledge with the world? Using your years of experience to create something for yourself? Hover wants to help you take the first step in getting your ideas off the ground. If you have a brand that you've always dreamt of building or a business you want to take online, the first step is finding your domain name. 
Hover makes this super simple with a clear and straightforward user experience, easy-to-use tools, and truly amazing support from friendly humans. You'll be able to find the perfect domain name for your business, one that's memorable, relevant, and boosts your brand. You can buy a domain, set up custom email boxes, and point it to your website in just a few clicks. If you ever run into trouble, help is just a phone call or chat away. It's never too late to step up to the plate and share what you have to offer. Getting online has helped thousands of people around the world reach new heights with their businesses. In addition to the classics like .com, you can get extensions like .shop, .tech, and .art with over 400 more to choose from. Secure, simple, and reliable. Hover is a trusted and popular choice amongst millions of people launching any kind of brand or business. If you're ready to get your idea off the ground with the perfect domain name, head to hover.com nobody to get 10% off your first Hover purchase. Maybe you want to buy a domain name for someone as a gift for the holidays. You may even want to secure your child's name as a domain name for privacy purposes. Again, that's hover.com slash nobody to get 10% off your first Hover purchase. That's hover, spelled H-O-V-E-R dot com slash nobody for 10% off your first purchase. So when you are doing the sitting meditation... Do you recommend that people focus on the the trauma or just kind of go wherever your mind goes during that 20 minutes? No, actually they're instructed. Everyone is instructed to focus their attention on the breath. So this kind of meditation, it's called focused attention meditation. And it's, you know, basically been around for thousands of years. People have been doing this type of meditation. It's also somewhat similar to Zen, you know, I think it's been associated with, with, with Zen practices as well. But the idea is to focus just on one thing and it's, and it's the breath. So you focus your attention on the breath, take a breath and you count it. The little space between the out breath and the in breath. And then you take another breath and you count two. And I always tell people like, okay, now we're going to count to a thousand. And everyone's like, what? (laughs) Because I mean, most people can't get to a thousand. Like most people get to like, (laughs) at least for me, I get to like 10. And then I'm thinking about, you know, dinner. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. What somebody said earlier in the day. And then before you know it, you're off in all these like kind of like tangents. And so that's the point is then to recognize, oh, wait a minute. I'm not paying attention anymore and go back to one. So I think of it as a form of learning because you, you know, you learn to pay attention, then you forget, and then you remember that you forgot, and then you go back. Should the goal of that or really any kind of treatment that we seek out for PTSD be to fully recover, or is that even possible? Yeah, that's, I mean, fully recover. I don't know. Yeah, what that would even necessarily mean. I think one of the things that's important to, to realize is that all of us suffer, you know, to some extent as a result of our experiences in our lives. And so it kind of, I think it just helps put it in context. You know, I had, we've been delivering this program out in in the communities and in various communities of people who've had a lot of trauma and a lot of suffering. 
Uh, in one particular case, we were working at a, at a, at a residential treatment center um, for homeless mothers, mothers who were homeless out on the streets of New Jersey. Um, they were fortunate to be, you know, to be accepted into this, this home where they lived with other mothers and their children. They were reunited with, for the most part with, with their children. And they had lots of trauma in their past and on the streets, obviously, and addiction issues too. Anyway, so one of the women, after we had, were providing this program, she says, you know, I never thought about a, a thought before. You know, I never thought, I always had like a thought and then I, I had to act on it or I, I felt like it, they were, yeah, like kind of out of my control. And so I think what it helps people do these forms of meditation and mental training is just help people give some perspective on their own thoughts um, so that they don't have to necessarily feel like they're out of control or that they somehow control their behaviors. And what are your recommendations in terms of how long you do this map training? I mean, you, you talk about the, do the 20 minutes of sitting meditation 10 minutes of slow walking meditation, and then 30 minutes of aerobic exercise. So that's a total of about an hour. Is it something we should try to do every day, every couple of days? Um, how? What's your recommendation along those lines? Yeah, so in our studies uh, that we've documented all these positive effects, it's people have only been doing it once or twice a week for about six weeks. And so it doesn't have to be an everyday uh, practice, you know, and I think it's to some extent, I think it's better that way because, you know, sometimes people, when they start something new, they're like, oh, I have to do it like every day. And then before you know it, they're not doing it at all <laughs> because it's too much, it takes right. up too much time. Maybe, you know, if it did cost money, which this doesn't, but if it did, it would cost too much money or yeah, it just. So I wanted to make something that you could do, you know, once or twice a week, and it would help you with your kind of everyday feelings of stress or depression. I mean, obviously, if you wanted to do it every day, uh, that would probably be really good. But most people don't. I certainly don't do it that often. Um, I like to think of it as I, I call it a brain fitness program. Because I think of it as just a way to kind of keep our brains fit, you know, fit for life, so to speak. So because people do this all the time with their with their abs or their biceps or <laughs> various other part body parts, but they don't necessarily think about their brain. They're like, well, I'll just worry about my brain later, you know, after something happens. And we 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 need to be prepared for the future. So so that we can respond better. One quick question that I had uh, as far as the aerobic exercise is concerned, what if someone is too old or too unfit to do that 30 minutes of aerobic exercise as part of the, the training? Yeah, that's a great question. And, it, and it's actually something I've had to, to wrestle with a little bit myself recently because I injured my back last year and um, it was challenging, you know, to find a way to exercise without necessarily <laughs> exercise aerobically without uh, jumping or any kind of like really 
uh, high impact activities. But what I did find is that you can do it. Um, you have to be a little inventive. Surprisingly enough, the arms are super good at getting the heart rate up. And so as long as you can move your arms like up and down over your head, you can generally, with enough um, enthusiasm, you can get your heart rate up uh, over, well, we're trying to get the heart rate over 60% of the maximum. So for most people, that would be about 100 beats per minute, which is, you know, is high, but it's not ridiculous. So we're not asking people to, you know, run a marathon or sprint like a, like an athlete. It's more just getting your heart rate up into this aerobic zone and doing it for, you know, 20 of the 30 minutes. It's not going to go up immediately. It'll take a little while to get it up from what, from your resting, which is probably, you know, 70 or less than a hundred for most people. Yeah. So it takes a little while to get it up and then kind of sustain it for, you know, 20 or so minutes and then, you know, bring it down. So I think it's, a, it's possible, you know, that, um, we had, um, I did another study recently or a couple of years ago in, in the city of Newark with women who had HIV pretty much most of their lives. You know, a lot of them were infected when they were young. And um, even though they were on these antiviral medications, there was a lot of physical uh, problems, you know, pain in the extremities, difficulty moving really quickly. And, and they actually were, they were able to do it. So um, yeah, I think it's just kind of getting a little bit more aware of your own heart beat and then kind of recognizing, oh, I can get it up higher than it is normally. And that's kind of the point is just getting it up so that you can get more of that oxygen into your brain. We're glad you're part of our Nobody Told Me family of listeners. And we're excited to tell you about Lomi, the world's first smart waste appliance. If you've struggled with composting and feel it's too much work or feel bad that you're not doing your part to help the environment, you have to check out Lomi. Lomi is a countertop electric composter, and I love it because I don't have a traditional garbage disposal. With Lomi, I don't need to take a lot of trips to the garbage with food waste. I just turn food scraps into dirt with the push of a button, and in just a minute, we'll tell you about a special offer from Lomi for our Nobody Told Me listeners. I love my Lomi because just about anything I'd put in the kitchen disposer can be put into the Lomi on my countertop and turned into dirt in four hours. There's no smell when it runs and it's really quiet. Since I got my Lomi, I throw out way less garbage. Me too. And you know, I think it's cut down my kitchen garbage by at least a half. That means it's not going to landfills and producing methane. Instead, my Lomi turns my food waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed to my plants. It is so cool to see. I feel great knowing that I'm composting and creating soil instead of garbage. I have a basically limitless supply of dirt now for my garden, and Lomi is so easy to use. While you may want to get a Lomi for yourself, you may also want to get one for someone on your holiday list. This is a great gift that will help someone year-round. If you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash 
slash NTM and use the promo code NTM to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash NTM. And again, that's Lomi spelled L-O-M-I. Use promo code NTM at checkout. Food waste is gross. Lomi is your solution. With the holidays just around the corner, Lomi will make the perfect gift for someone on your shopping list. Just head to Lomi.com slash NTM and use the promo code NTM to get $50 off your Lomi. The pandemic was jarring and traumatic for everybody to varying extents. And I'm wondering what advice you would have for people who are looking back at everything that happened and how our lives changed and maybe building it up to be more than it was or less than it was, how can they really put it into perspective? Yeah. And we're, we're, st- we're not even through it yet. <laughs> that's that's yeah, what's hard yeah. to, yeah, it's hard to even like look back yet. Um, I think of the pandemic as the quintessential everyday trauma. And, you know, when I started writing this book, it was before the pandemic. I, you know, who could have imagined that such a thing would, would happen? I think it's uh, it, it's changed us forever. And, you know, some people, I'm sure, had it way worse. Well, I know had it way worse than I did. And yet I still feel, you know, felt really pretty traumatized by it. Um, I hear people, some people saying, oh, you know, maybe they, not that they, not that they liked it. I don't think anybody in the planet could say they really, you know, that they liked it, but that yeah, they obviously. found things, yeah, obviously, but they found things maybe that they didn't think of before, or I don't know, you know, there's always some people are able to kind of see, see the silver lining uh, in these really traumatic experiences. But I, I think for most of us, yeah, it's been really, really difficult. And, and I have to say, you know, even for me, it's been really difficult to stay kind of motivated to take care of myself. And I'm sure if I have that issue and I have this program and I've devoted so much of my life to these kind of issues, uh, yeah, I, I feel... I feel like it's going to take a long time for for us to to, to recover. Dr. Scherz, our show is called Nobody Told Me, and we always ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what is it that nobody told you about trauma, everyday trauma, long-term trauma, that you had to learn the hard way that you'd like to pass on to others to maybe help them avoid issues in the future? Oh, wow. Um, Let's see. Nobody told me. I guess if I was going to keep it kind of specific to uh, the book, um, I would say nobody told me it was so hard to to write a book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm kind of joking, but seriously, it is really hard because, uh, and and maybe people did say it was hard, but it, you know, I want it to be hopeful. I want it to, and I want it to be helpful. Um, But that's really hard if you're talking about trauma. And, and I want it to be a a little bit about science because I feel like, oh, it'll be useful if people kind of learn about their own brain or the stress response 
But then I also know like, yeah, there's a lot of people that don't want to know all those kind of details. And so, yeah, I mean, seriously, I didn't know it would be this hard to kind of, to kind of reach that happy medium. And I'm not even sure that I necessarily have, but um, yeah, I just, I didn't know it would be that hard. Well, I think you've done a great service to uh, to people because it really is very accessible and it's easy to follow. And I think, like you say, everybody suffers from some level of trauma in their lives and, and you've got some great tools for us. Oh, good. Thank you for saying that. You know, I'm like I said, I'm just hopeful that it's useful, that it's accessible, that it's not too much. And yet it's. um yeah, like tools. And one of the messages that I, I hope I got across is like, there's no one tool, like there's no one therapy or meditation style or uh, fitness routine or medication for that matter for everyone. And so the best thing to do in life is just learn as much as you can, you know, learn as much as you can about uh, these various techniques that have been around, some of them for thousands of years, about how to kind of manipulate to some extent your own thoughts or your own feelings. So, you you know, you just have a better sense of, of who you are. Well, Dr. Shores, we thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your information. Thank you so much for having me. Our thanks to Dr. Tracy Shores. She is the author of Everyday Trauma, Remapping the Brain's Response to Stress anxiety, and painful memories for a better life. And her website is maptrainmybrain.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us.